Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This past week, as we watched the protests happening in our nation's capital here in Vancouver, as we saw what was written on signs, what was being said, one sign in particular stood out to me. It could have been held at almost any protest. It could have been held at a protest for abortion in favor. It could have been held at an anti-vaccine rally. Say it with me if you know it. My body, my choice. My body, my choice. My body, my choice has become to us a secular creed, something that is irrefutably so. It's just true, we believe. In reality, however, my body, my choice is a relatively new idea, stemming from a relatively new conception of the modern self. See, you and I, so the thinking goes today, belong to no one but ourselves. No one but ourselves. In the 17th century, this language of individual rights and liberties began and has now come to infect all that we say and do, so much so that it does not matter how you voted last election. It does not matter how old you are, what color your skin is, or what job you do. Everyone in this country agrees on this one thing. You are your own and you belong to yourself. It's true. And at first glance, at, at, at first listen, this sounds both liberating and empowering, doesn't it? Uh, the author, Alan Noble, in his book, You Are Not Your Own, which is a, a very, very good book. I would highly recommend it. He says this. Here's the allure of only belonging to ourselves. He writes, To be your own and belong to yourself means that the most fundamental truth about existence is that you are responsible for your existence and everything it entails. I am responsible for living a life of purpose, of defining my identity, of interpreting meaningful events, of choosing my values and electing where I belong. If I belong to myself, then I am the only one who can set the limits on who I am or what I can do. No one else has the right to define me, to choose my journey in life, or to assure me that I am okay. He again says, I belong to myself. It sounds empowering, sounds liberating. But wait, Noble says, there's a trade-off. He goes on to write this, the freedom of sovereign individualism comes at a great price. 
Once I am liberated from all social, moral, natural, and religious values, I become responsible for my own meaning, for the meaning of my own life. Then he writes, with no God to judge or justify me, I have to be my own judge and redeemer. And so he continues to say there are two camps in this world, and speaking generally, he says there are the affirming who read every self-help book they can get their hands on and jump on the treadmill happily. I can do this. I'm going to be my best self. And then the rest of us who are discouraged, despairing, will never compete. And so he continues to say, we numb ourselves with entertainment or, and I found this particularly convicting, we daydream about being diagnosed with a disease that justifies our mediocrity. Are these our only options this morning? Either get on the treadmill or get run over by it. And I think when we belong to ourselves, they are. But what if that weren't the case? What if there was another way? The good news we're going to see this morning in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 20, is that there is another way. But to get there, we're going to need to confront a truth that when we think about it, when we really, really think about it, is much more controversial, much more convicting, and much more confrontational than anything we read and saw last week. No, no, no. The, the truth this morning, if we truly understand it, will cut us, will destroy us. We're going to need to confront the truth that, as Paul says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, and so glorify God in your body. Here's how we're going to work through our passage. If you're taking notes, first is this, two slogans, two slogans, second point, one flesh. Two slogans, one flesh. If you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. If you don't have a Bible at all, by the way, there are Bibles at the back, Take them, keep them, it's our gift to you. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, let's read to verse 13 together. Paul writes, and we keep on reading in our series. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by any, anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. If I belong only to me, then I and I alone decide what to do with my body. This is what the church in Corinth is believing, or has believed. Actually, what Paul has heard from the church in Corinth, and maybe from Chloe's people, which, by the way, you have to assume are the most like, hated people in Corinth by this point, like, Chloe's people are snitches. Just telling Paul all their stuff. <laughs> Chloe's people has, they, they've told Paul, Paul, by the way, there are people in the church who are now going to visit prostitutes. We read that in verses 15 to 16. This is the presenting problem, that there are people in the church in Corinth going to visit prostitutes. But because the Corinthians believe their bodies to only belong to themselves, they've made excuses. Excuses that Paul wants to directly confront this morning. Did you catch them? I want to read to you from a different English translation, from the NIV. And the NIV helps us out here because it adds that phrase, you say. It helps us understand that Paul is quoting the Corinthians back to themselves. And so in the NIV, we read this. I have the right to do anything, you say. Paul responds, but not everything is beneficial. Again, I have the right to do anything, 
Paul responds, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, verse 13, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. End quote. Paul will respond after that. See, Paul identifies two slogans and two, sorry, containing two lies that the Corinthians are believing. Two lies that we believe all the time. And the first is this. The first is that Christian freedom means that we have the freedom to do whatever we want. How did the NIV put it? I have the right to do anything. Now, we've already seen this in our series in 1 Corinthians, if you've been tracking with us so far, but it's this basic understanding of freedom as freedom from, right? I've been freed from these old laws. I've been freed from this old way. I've, I've been freed from something. It's freedom from. And in part, that's true, right? If you're a Christian this morning, we've been freed from our sin. We've been freed from the power of sin. There is room for freedom from in the Christian story, but it's not the whole story. See, perhaps it's more faithful to think of it like this. The Bible talks not about freedom from, but freedom to, as in freedom to serve the Lord. So, for example, if you know the biblical story, you'll know this, but if you don't, that's fine. In Exodus, we read of the story of Yahweh rescuing his people from Egyptian slavery. It's a beautiful story. I'd encourage you to go to Exodus, read that story. But can you imagine Yahweh having just rescued his people, I was reading the plagues the other day, having just done all that for his people, now turning to them in Moses and saying to his people something to the effect of, well, I've judged the Egyptians, I've sent the plagues, I've rescued you from oppression and hardship, and, and now you're free to go back to Egypt if you choose. After all, you have the right to do anything. Now, what does Moses say time and time and time and time and time again to Pharaoh on behalf of God? Let my people go, so what? So that they may worship me. Let my people go that they may serve me and know me. See, the tragic irony is, is that when freedom from is all we have, we always end up back in slavery. We always end up thinking like like the Hebrews did, oh man, there were pots of meat in Egypt. And it wasn't that bad in Egypt. And at least I knew what to expect in Egypt. And we always end up selling ourselves back into slavery, back into sin. See, See, Paul said this, it ends up once more, what's his language? Dominating us, mastering us, enslaving us. The Bible commentator Andrew Wilson, he he makes this very succinct and easy for us to understand. He says this, the Corinthian lie, our lie, is this. The point of Christian freedom is to be free from sin, not to sell yourself into slavery to sin. The point of Christian freedom is to be free from sin, not to turn around and sell yourself back into slavery to sin. See, the first lie is that Christian freedom means freedom to do whatever we want. This is freedom understood conceptually as limitlessness. We think freedom equals limitlessness. And if you believe that this morning, let me relieve you of your shame. That's what most of us believe. Most of us believe that freedom is limitlessness. 
It's freedom to do whatever we, we want. Many of you would not recognize the name of, um, of 19th century philosopher John Stuart Mill. Most of you would be like, I don't know who you're talking about, Jake. I thought this was Sunday church. But John Stuart Mill's definition of freedom, you'll absolutely recognize. It's been hugely influential in the Western world. He says this. He says, the only freedom which deserves the name, the only good freedom for John Stuart Mill, is that of pursuing our own good in our own way, right? You're nodding your heads. I've heard this before. So long as we do not attempt to deprive others of theirs or impede their efforts to attain it. And it sounds lovely, doesn't it? It sounds really nice. It does. It does. But what happens when my idea of freedom conflicts with your idea of freedom? This is why French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre, he famously said this, hell is other people. Hell is other people. Because in this definition of freedom, we, we cannot truly coexist. Hell is other people. Your freedom will always trespass the boundaries of others. See, Christian freedom, big picture, is not only freedom to serve God, but also freedom to serve others, to give of ourselves for others. Consider for a moment the most free man who ever lived. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth comes to earth, and I want you, now I'm going to read a few texts, a few passages of Scripture, I want you to filter John Stuart Mill's understanding of freedom through Jesus' understanding of freedom. See, Jesus comes to the world, God in flesh, and he says in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Jesus, you're not expressing yourself. You're not being your most authentic self, Jesus. You're only doing what the Father is doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus freely, he gladly serves the Father. Keep on going. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came, what? To express himself? To establish and build his brand, right? Get a lot of followers on Instagram. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus freely serves the Father and he freely serves his disciples. He freely serves us. True freedom is not limitlessness, but freedom to serve God and others. Second lie is this. Second lie is found in the second slogan that Paul recites. Paul writes this. Look at your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. It says, Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. See, so why is visiting prostitutes not a big deal? In the Corinthian view, Paul's overreacting. It's just a body. When I'm hungry, I eat. When I have to go to the bathroom, I go to the bathroom. When I want sex, I have sex. This is the Corinthian way of thinking. And we can hear the modern man in the slogan, can't we? We can hear ourselves, our peers. It's just sex, Paul. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? What, what, what's more is it appears that this slogan has been Christianized. And by the way, isn't God just going to destroy our bodies anyway? 
It's just sex. God's going to destroy our bodies anyway. What's the big deal? Like I said, this sounds incredibly modern. One of the books I recommended last week was a book called Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? by Sam Albury. It's a great little book. And in that book, Albury tells a story of coming to America to teach at a university. And when he comes, he's offered two vehicles. And the first vehicle he's offered is a, an old beat-up truck. I'm not a car guy. I'm going to talk about cars for a small amount of time because I'll get in trouble here. But it's, it's an old beat-up truck. It's a truck that's destined for the junker. And because it's old and beat-up, his friend gives him the keys and says, hey, drive it however you like. Drive it however you like. Do, do whatever you want with it. Go, go, go nuts. Go, go crazy. You're British. You're in America. You're going in a car accident anyway. So just, just go nuts. Right? He's offered that one car. The other car he's offered is a brand new convertible. And understandably, his friend did not give him the keys and say, hey, drive it however you like. No. He said, be careful. And Sam was. He accepted this, the, the, this second offer. Let's just say it mattered how Sam drove this car. And the story is in some ways not at all about what the text is talking about. In other ways, it's completely related to what the text is talking about. The story illustrates how the Corinthians, how these Christians were thinking about their, their bodies. They thought of their bodies as disposables, as husks to be done away with at the end of the age. Just a collection of matter to be one day erased. And so they were driving their bodies over to the brothels. It's just sex. That's what they're saying. Except it's not. How does Paul respond to this cultural slogan? He says this in verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Two, it's just sex. Paul says three things. He says, first, Corinth, do you not know Christ said, do you not know that your body has a purpose? Has a purpose. Paul says, it is for the Lord. See, Paul's vision of the body, our physical bodies, not just our thinking and our believing, but our physical bodies are these outposts of God's glory in our world. We give God glory when we, when we reflect in our bodies, his designed intent for, for our sexuality, for our flourishing. But I hear the objections, I do. Maybe you didn't say it, but I, but I heard your thought. Paul, Jake, just one more person trying to make a claim on my body. If the disease is my individual autonomy and the cure is giving myself over to the Lord, is the cure worse than the disease? The good news, look with me, is that Paul ends verse 13, and the Lord for the body. See, many others have said, your body is for me. Many others have laid claim to your body. But no one else can say, and I am for the body. Because no one else is the Lord who knows our bodies, made our bodies, and so knows what's best for our bodies. When we submit our bodies, our sexuality, uh, to the Lord, we can trust that he is for us. Well, how, how do we know this, Jake? Keep reading. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Second thing is this. Your body not only has meaning now as a vessel of God's glory, your body, Paul says, has a future. 
has a future. Our, our bodies are not disposable, in other words. No, Paul says that we will experience the same new body resurrection that Jesus underwent. Jesus, who did it as our first fruits. Th- this is why when Paul, if you don't understand this, then, then Scripture doesn't make sense. This is why Paul, when he writes his farewell to the church in Thessalonica, he says this, and I want to read this to you. First Thessalonians, right? You got that slide? 5.23, there it is. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And he says this, it sounds strange to us if we just have this Gnostic belief of, of, of the, you know, the soul is good and the body is bad. But Paul brings them together. He says this, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's why Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, this young elder in 1 Timothy says this, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. In other words, we know this, don't we? It's not just your teaching, your, your doctrine that matters. What you do with your body matters. Your, your, your life matters. Your physical actions matter. Your body is a gift. It has a purpose. It has a future. And in other words, it's not just sex. But we have to keep on going. Because to understand Paul's response to the second slogan appropriately, we have to go to our second point. We have to move from, from two slogans now to one flesh. Verses 15 to 19, we read this. Follow with me on the screen or in your Bibles. Let's look together. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? See, Paul, under the big overarching aim of showing the Corinthians that they do not belong to themselves, is going to draw us now to two ways in which we have been joined together. We've experienced a union. And he'll begin, as it were, on the horizontal level with with us, with, with other people. He'll say this. He'll say, sex, sex joins us, unites us to one another. Look at verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. To to understand what Paul's getting at here, we have to back up. We have to back up. We have to go to, to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, we read this, that after the creation of Eve, this is the first woman, we read this, Genesis 2, verses 23 to 25. Then the man said, this at last, he's looking at Eve, This at last, Eve, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Sex, we learn in Genesis, is part of the process by which God makes two into one. 
We should also be clear that in this context, that the teaching is that this powerful and potent unifying act is to be experienced and enjoyed and delighted in in the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. A union has occurred, or we could say perhaps more accurately, a reunion has occurred. Remember, Eve is taken from Adam's rib. And so when the man and the woman come together in sex, it is, as Sam Albury writes, a rejoining of flesh that had been separated in her creation. This is why sex is not just sex. In its right, beautiful context, sex is the giving of ourselves wholly and completely to another. Sex is not about getting lost in the other person, No, sex as it is intended is deeply humanizing, giving us a context to use our freedom to serve our spouse, our husband, or our wife. And if this is what sex is really about, what happens when it becomes casual? What happens when when partners abound? What happens when you, church in Corinth, time and time again visit the prostitute? I think what Paul's saying here is nothing less than the very fracturing of ourselves. And suddenly we return to where we began this morning. In a world where we belong to ourselves, not only do we face the overwhelming task of creating meaning, but we encounter the inevitable despair when sexual freedom or any other kind of so-called freedom not only fails to deliver, but actually serves to only further dehumanize us. We are in need, are we not, of a better union, a better joining. Paul now moves from the horizontal and grounds it in a vertical union. He says all of this makes sense only if Christ has joined us to himself. And being joined to Christ, Paul will say, look at your text, first, this means that we are Christ's body. See, the first union, the one that took place in the garden, the one that takes place all the time, all around the world, every single day, this first union is only meaningful, only makes sense as it points to a greater union, a other union, this bigger union. This one flesh union of man and woman exists totally and entirely that we might enjoy and understand more the greater union that is Christ with his church. That you and I, who've been brought so near to Christ, that we now make up his very body. Don't don't miss this language. It's absolute intimacy. See, Paul says, what has Christ's body to do with being joined to someone who isn't your wife? Who isn't your husband? What what, what has Christ to do with, with, with sexual immorality? He says in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you not see their exalted status? Shall then I take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. And so he says in verse, verse 18, so flee from sexual immorality. Paul says, and I want us to hear this, Christ City, don't linger. Don't hum and haw. Don't worry about what other people will think as you run out of the theater or turn off the TV. Don't entertain it to secure a business deal. I I think of Joseph in the Old Testament. 
Joseph, who's approached by Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife, who knew that no one else was home. Potiphar's wife, who asked Joseph to sleep with her. And what does Joseph do? Does Joseph try to reason with Potiphar's wife? Does he worry? Well, maybe I'll hurt her feelings if I don't say yes. No, Joseph doesn't see a woman in that moment. He sees a wolf. He sees death itself. And so we read this in Genesis 39. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand. And what did he do? And fled and got out of the house. He ran away. Men, women of Christ City Church, stop trying to manage your sexual sin. Flee sexual immorality. Run from it. Flee from it. Because, and here Paul gives us another classic, do you not know, do you not know, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know, he says again, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. In your union with Christ, you have become part of his body, a member of his body. But, but more than that, as we've already heard Paul say in this very letter, he's saying for the second time now, you've become the very temple of the Holy Spirit. You, you can't tell me that, that our generation and our culture has a higher view of the body than that. Do you not know that you become the very temple of the Holy Spirit? You have been sanctified, as we saw last week, set apart for God's holy purpose. And, and so when Paul says, you know, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immoral sin is against his own body, he's not saying that sexual sin is, is worse than other sin, but that uniquely, when you engage in sexual immorality, you, think about this, who are united to Jesus in one body, take a part of Jesus' body, which you are. You take a part of Jesus' body and you force it into union with a prostitute. If extrapolated, the language is graphic. It's a desecration of the temple. The very dwelling place of God's spirit in you to faith. And, and I want to say here, and as I was preparing, I, I wanted to be mindful of a group of people who are listening this morning. As an aside, I think this gives us some theological understanding as to why sexual abuse and rape is so horrific and so evil. One writer says, in view of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, the pain of sexual assault is not the pain of a grazed knee. It's not just external pain but is the trauma of holy space being desecrated. So hear me, Christ City. The Lord is for the body, which means for those of us who have dehumanized ourselves and for those of us this morning who have been dehumanized by others, there is hope. There is hope. The same Lord who is for the resurrection of the body also redeems it here and now today. And so we come full circle. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Paul writes, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, and so glorify God in your body. What is our hope this morning? 
What is the hope this church professes? This church proclaims? What is the hope we live and die on? That we've been purchased by a good master, a good Lord. That we, furthermore, are not that master. That you and I don't bear the burden of creating meaning or needing to justify our lives anymore. You're freed from that crisis. Nor do we belong anymore to the master of sin and the devil who will only abuse us and dehumanize us and imprison us. No, Christ said, hear the words of 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20. You have a good Lord. We have a good master, one who bought us with his own blood. A master named Jesus who goes to the cross for our redemption to buy us back from sin. It is his blood that washes clean, guilty hands. It is his blood that frees us from living in an inhumane way in an inhumane world. It is his blood that restores the image of God in us when it has been tarnished and violated by others. It is his blood that cries out to all who have suffered terribly under cruel and greedy and relentless masters, come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ City, yes, it is the most offensive truth we can hear in our day and age. You are not your own. But if we have ears to hear this morning and eyes to see, you are not your own is the most liberating message you will ever hear. Christ has bought you. He's purchased you with his blood, and so glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are so steeped in the language and the waters of individualism, of this sovereign autonomy, that we don't know where to begin. And so we want to begin here. We want to begin by saying, Lord, we belong to you. You are our good master. You alone purchased us with your blood. You alone redeemed us for true freedom and true flourishing. And so we ask for your forgiveness. For when we've worn the crown as rulers over our own lives, we ask for your forgiveness. And we give our lives, even our very bodies, to you, to serve you and others in our midst. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church, East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more, of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christitychurch.ca.